How can investors, financial institutions, and other local stakeholders leverage the Opportunity Zone incentive to improve community development results? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. How can investors and financial institutions leverage community development through Opportunity Zones? Joining me on the show today to discuss this is Jeannie Bonds. Jeannie is director of the Invest to Sustain initiative at the University of North Carolina Keenan Flagler Business School, and she joins us today from her office in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. Happy to have you on the show today with me, Jeannie. Thanks for joining us. And to get us started, could you tell us what is the Invest to Sustain initiative? Yeah. So um, the Invest to Sustain initiative is part of the Keenan Flagler Business School. And it really has a couple of goals. One goal is to create an impact investment concentration track for students, both undergraduate as well as MBA students, because we know that that's of great interest to individuals that are pursuing um, business degrees. So we want to better incorporate that into the curriculum. Uh, the second goal is to do a lot of community development programming. And by that, I mean, really work with stakeholders across North Carolina, Virginia, and South Carolina uh, to make sure that community colleges, local governments, uh, local universities, nonprofits, community development corporations really are in the mix and on the learning curve as to how investment is working, how they should leverage different types of capital for different types of projects and programs. So a, a huge element of this is actually being out in the community, um, working with those individuals to help them learn impact investment. Um, and the third piece is creating a place where people can find examples and models of good, solid community economic development. So we'll be creating a database where you'll be able to go and look at promising or best practices and actually see models of the financial transactions those communities undertook uh, to achieve community development results. Um, it's really one thing that's lacking. Um, later, if we talk about the Community Reinvestment Act, there is a website where you can go to get some aggregate data about community reinvestment that the banks are engaging in, but you can't actually see the project. So one of the pieces we felt strongly about was having a place where you could go and actually a community or a developer investor could actually see some really solid examples of work in practice. So all together, those three pieces of it encompass this Invest to Sustain initiative. Oh, that's great, Jeannie. Thanks for uh, clarifying that a little bit. Thanks for that information. Uh, before we proceed and start talking more about Opportunity Zones, I want to give a little bit of background on you, Jeannie. You, you come in with a lot of credentials. You are a professor now at the University of North Carolina, but you were formerly Director of Community Economic Development at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience and uh, what led you to where you are today? 
Yes. Yeah, so the um, I have a, a a long tenure of um, experience in community development, um, really going back to shortly after the Community Reinvestment Act uh, was passed by Congress and the first regulations were coming out. So at the Federal Reserve, that's one of the three banking regulators. The community development function at the Federal Reserve it exists in all 12 reserve banks as well as the Board of Governors. And really the impetus for that is the Community Reinvestment Act. So as after it was passed in 1977 and started to roll out, the Federal Reserve Bank realized that they needed someone there who could talk to the banks and the communities to kind of be an intermediary. Um, in those conversations to help moving, move it along and answer questions. And then as the field of community development grew, which I would say is mostly because of the Community Reinvestment Act, we now have this whole field called community economic development. As that grew, the Reserve Bank became more involved in that. It's, it's a different function from what you would think of the reserve banks because they do monetary policy and then they do supervision and regulation of the banks. And community development is very much a field of expertise that's a practice field, uh, but it, it's grown up in the Federal Reserve and it results in applied research, uh, convenings, a lot of interaction uh, with the banks uh, to help them match up with community organizations so that they can fulfill their responsibility under CRA. Um, so a, a great experience. They provide a great service. I left there because the one thing I couldn't do at the Federal Reserve is actually do that matchmaking. Um, I could put groups together, but I couldn't actually help them think through the financial model. And so that's really the whole reason for going to UNC and creating the Invest to Sustain initiative, because now I can put them in the room together and then I can actually help them craft what the leveraging of the capital stack might look at might look like. So um, that's really the reason for doing it and to be able to spend more time on those promising models as opposed to, you know, just doing the convenings as I did at the Federal Reserve. A lot more matchmaking, uh, actually putting capital together uh, between yeah. investors and developers. I think that's great. Uh, let's let, let's dive in now. Let's talk about opportunity zones. In in particular, I want to get your opinions on what's good about opportunity zones and also what's bad about opportunity zones. There were some changes between the original provision and the final statute that ended up being passed at the end of twenty seventeen. What changed exactly, though, Jeannie? And what are some of the ramifications of those changes? Yeah, so I, I think a couple of things. So the original concept of opportunity zones um, it, it resulted in some standalone legislation in the Congress, and it was bipartisan legislation. Um, but if you were to roll back and look at those initial House bills um, that introduced this concept as early as 2015, there one of the major components was that there was a formula for governors to designate their zones. Um, as this rolled along and ended up becoming a provision in the Tax Cuts and Job Act, you know, it was, it was greatly reduced down into this provision. So the, the tax incentive piece of it stayed the same, but I think a major, you know, loss was that formula that the governors would use to actually designate their zones. Um, and so what I mean by that is governors, 
struggled to figure out they're political creatures and they struggled to figure out how am I going to designate these zones, you know, without any guidance. So I certainly under, you know, they all understood this is low income census tract. They looked at how many they had. They could only designate 25% of them. That forced them to make political choices. So you may have had a state that said, we're going to put one in each county, at least one in each county. Um, so rather than it being a very pragmatic evidence data driven decision as to how to achieve the best result, you ended up with a political decision. And that caused ramifications down the line in terms of look at a particular city and maybe they had 25 eligible tracks and nine were designated. It may be a hodgepodge and you may have really solid projects that could have benefited from this, but they're across the street from the zone. So I think that was a was a myth in how it was refined. Not quite sure how that piece of it fell out, but there are lots of tools. There's dynamism tools, there's investment tools. There were a lot of ways you could have applied a formula so that you were really choosing a, a group of uh, census tracts where you could really test this theory and find out if it really works. So at the end of this, it's going to be difficult to really evaluate it and figure out what worked and what didn't um, because it, so much of it became a political process. I think some of the other misses were guardrails. And what I mean by that, and we can talk in more detail about it, is that other programs implemented um, at the federal level, like New Markets Tax Credit, had very similar goals. But New Markets Tax Credit is a very streamlined process. Um, it, it's in the Department of Treasury. It, um, it requires communities and those developers to set up advisory groups. There are lots of uh, really streamlined processes in that program that certainly could have been added to this program. Um, as it turns out, this program has no owner and it has no home. So the, there's regulations, but there's no place in the federal government, no any one place um, for this. So all of the federal agencies and departments um, through a council, they might give added bonus points for existing grant programs, but there's really no one who owns it at the federal level. There's definitely no one who owns it at the state level. So governors had a responsibility to designate the zones. And then after that, if they designate a czar or a person in charge, that was totally up to them. So you don't really have an owner at the state level. And the activity is all occurring at the local level. So it's, it's a mechanism without a home and without anyone to really own it. And I think that weakens uh, the program because ultimately you have no place to go um, to get final say on anything. Right. I, I, I kind of think it's a double-edged sword. To, to a certain extent, there are some benefits to there being no centralized authority that you have to go through. It opens up uh, or it's less restrictive on capital or getting started. Uh, but but yeah, your point is well taken that you know, there's no <laughs> the same thing, there is no one place to go to for for help and for guidance and and for guardrails as you say. So, Jeannie, you mentioned a, a few things that were that were bad about opportunities. What's what's good about it though? Um, well, I I think I mean you're right. It's a double edged sword because without a lot of that bureaucratic mechanism, you know, communities, developers, funds, investors can be a lot more creative 
um, because they don't have those uh, constraints. And I think we're definitely seeing some of the creativity. There was an issue early on with transparency because this is information not housed with any owner. So the information was primarily going to the IRS. You know, we've seen a change with the regulations where the IRS is going to collect some information and conceivably, you know, make that public in some way. But, you know, again, from my standpoint, when you implement public policy, you want to be able to evaluate public policy and figure out what worked and what didn't. I think it's still uh, constrained to some extent because not everything is out there and available in any one place for researchers and others to really take a look at. Um, but the innovation certainly there. Um, I think the interest level, because you don't have all these bureaucratic constraints on it, is extraordinarily high, especially, you know, from the investor community. Um, a lot of interest in how to do it. You know, the flip side of that is it makes communities very nervous because these are low-income communities that are used to things happening to them instead of with them. Um, so it added a degree of uncertainty and skepticism with the community so we have something in play that has great potential but on one hand you've got a lot of excitement and eagerness and on the other hand you've got a lot of apprehension and fear and unless um, programs like mine with invest to sustain come and pull those two entities together and bridge that gap to move towards that innovation i think it can be very difficult to to achieve that yeah, so let's that a little bit more now, Jeannie. From an investor or developer standpoint, as we mentioned, there's no central bureaucratic mechanism that you have to work through. It's much more of an open market system. Uh, mm -hmm. But how can those individuals choose to work better with communities in order to achieve social impact as per congressional intent? Yeah, well, there's um. So I'd say first of all, you know, when you create an opportunity fund, you can voluntarily list that fund at Novaco.com, the Novogratics um, website. They have a listing that, you know, those funds can voluntarily list there. And the um, State Association of Housing Finance Agencies has one on their website as well. So a good practice is when you create a fund, you voluntarily list it and you say, here's about the size we plan to be. This is our geographic focus. Um, this is the type of project we're looking for, because then the names of the funds are out there and communities can call them and and it's open. So I think that's a good first step um, that they can do is to not be secretive and, and put it out there, because a lot of times in a local community, if you're buying a piece of land and it's just listed as an LLC, really the community can't tell if that's an opportunity fund or not. Um, so I think just going to transparency, you know, listing the information out there would be a great idea. Um, I do think in the new market, one of the strengths of the new markets tax credit program is the required community advisory council. It's definitely not required with opportunity zones, but I'm a former mayor. Um, and so that's in my background as well. So when I think about how any type of development or project comes together really well at the local level, it comes together when a developer, investors, you know, builders, you know, are open and upfront with the community and say, hey, here's a vacant building or here's a piece of land. This is what we're thinking about. 
you know, how does that sound to you? It just makes for a good practice between neighborhoods and neighbors and, you know, retail and industrial and how it fits with the community. So I think um, having that, maybe that you don't have to go to the extent of having this very formalized advisory council, but presenting in that town or city, getting feedback, making sure that your project fits in with a strategic plan that they have locally or other plans that we have, you know, just makes for good neighbors. And it's going to make your planning and permitting process run more smoothly. It's going to make the community feel like you're doing something that's going to benefit them. So, I mean, those are a couple of solid ways uh, to go into a community and just build relationships and probably come up with a much better outcome. Oh, I agree with that 100%. Get the community involved early and often in whatever project you're undertaking. So Jeannie, you've you've seen a lot of different Opportunity Zone projects. I know you've been to a lot of different Opportunity Zone events, particularly in the North Carolina area. Can, Can you give some examples of some really good Opportunity Zone projects that you've seen and and what makes them good Opportunity Zone projects? Yeah. And I mean, one thing I'll say up front is I hope that at some point this year and certainly into next year um, that we start to see a lot more projects that focus on Opportunity Zone business. Because when the regs were first being formulated, you know, the first jump was real estate. Um, Easier, straightforward, you know, seemed to make sense. Um, Now that we have the full plate of regulations, I hope that there's a lot more thought and I'm starting to see a lot more activity around Opportunity Zone business. Um, because I think driving to moving, you know, viable businesses into low-income areas that actually create jobs and create some mechanisms for prosperity for people in those communities is where you would actually see the full positive impact of this program. So there are a lot of projects out there. Some of the I, at the Federal Reserve, I traveled in a five-state plus D.C. um, district, so it was Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, North and South Carolina, and D.C., Um, and I still have to say I'm still in that area, though I look at a lot of information um, from other states, so I've seen very interesting affordable housing projects, and I think affordable housing projects are probably one of the more difficult um, real estate projects to undertake with or without opportunity zones. Um, but I've seen some interesting ones where the partnerships are with Habitat for Humanity um, or where you've got P3 public-private philanthropic partnerships rolled into the opportunity um, zone. So I think there's some going to be some real creativity around, and I don't think these will be large-scale affordable housing, but I think there's going to be some interesting examples. I know there's some that are very focused on workforce housing, um, teacher housing, so having a specific market focus. Uh, So I think we're going to see some innovations in affordable housing, and that's clearly something the country as a whole has to address. Um, uh, Quite a few projects that are in corridors with anchor institutions, universities. So I'm going to use Rock Hill, South Carolina as an example. I think there are nine opportunity fund projects in Rock Hill. Um, and there is a corridor between Winthrop and their um, Main Street 
um, and they're doing redevelopment of some old mills. And South Carolina has done, I have to brag on them because they've done a great job renovating and redeveloping old mills. They have a series of state tax credits um, that have made it very viable to go in and restore some of these buildings and bring some vibrancy um, to some local downtowns and help some smaller towns grow. So in Rock Hill, you've got redevelopment of a mill. You've got an interesting um, parking deck um, project. And I know parking decks are controversial. There's a whole slate of bills in Congress to not only eliminate opportunity zones, but eliminate certain types of projects, including um, parking decks. But there are times when a parking deck is something a city needs for a redevelopment of an area, um, but may not be able to pull off the funding. So there's a couple of um, examples of that where the fund is actually building the deck. They have some revenue stream coming in. The city's going to make payments once a year and at the end of the 10-year period, you know, buy that deck back out. Um, so I think there can be some good examples of those projects. Uh, there's a couple with hospitals um, where hospitals are going to be able to expand specialized units by letting an opportunity fund come in, build that for them, um, even staff it and put the equipment in and then have the hospital um, again, buy that back over the 10-year period. I think those are great examples. Um, you know, some of the negative ones you hear about are, you know, hotel projects, um, you know, which just may or may not fit into the, it, certainly there's some that do, but in, you know, just in random places where clearly you can see that's a tax um, incentive taking place, but not necessarily something that's going to drive any type of job creation in the community. Um, and then there's some that are, I think somewhat controversial because they might be a sports arena um, or some type of sporting recreation facility. And that takes you back to what kind of jobs would that create? It might create minimum wage jobs or retail type jobs. So I would say that in some of those examples, there are other steps that could be taken. Work with the community, um, create some entrepreneurship, help the community uh, create the businesses that support that sports arena instead of just building the arena, letting folks come in, actually help the community build their own businesses and staff that up. And then you can create uh, a wealth pathway for individuals in that community. Starting to see some conversations around that. Again, I think with business accelerators, um, there's one actually planned in Chapel Hill. You can take technology transfer out of the university, create small businesses, um, move them into an accelerator, and then move them from that accelerator out into the communities that need the job. So I, I think there's a couple of projects verging on that that could be really interesting. So a lot of different ideas there of what you think represent good opportunities on projects. Affordable housing can be tough, but workforce housing certainly up there. And then you also spoke about some uh, business investment opportunities. And Ginny, you didn't mention any uh, specific names, or would you? Or do you care to mention names of any of the projects or, or funds? Oh um, well, I think uh, I mean so Rock Hill. There's literally nine funds doing projects. I mean, one is um, the Sherbert Group out of Charlotte has uh, a couple of projects in Rock Hill. And um, so those are some good solid ones to look at. 
Um, the one I talked about with housing and um, Habitat for Humanity is in Charlottesville. And I think all of these are documented on the Economic Innovation Group's website that they created to document projects so people can go there and take a look. A uh, couple other funds. Uh, the Accelerator Project in Chapel Hill is um, Grub Properties is working on that building in Chapel Hill. But again, there's a whole list of really solid projects you can take a look at on that website. Good, and I'll be sure to link to that EIG uh, resource on the show notes for today's episode, which you can find at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. So th thanks for providing some of those names, Ginny. That's that's helpful. So the Opportunity Zone Incentive, uh, I, I think everybody knows is it's, it's just a tool, really. It's not the be-all, end-all, but it's, it's a tool for raising capital. And most of our listeners or all of our listeners are aware of that, but they may not be aware of, of some other tools that might be out there. I know, Jeannie, that you believe that the Community Reinvestment Act and the proposed new regulations around that act can be a prime example of, of another tool in the tool belt for developing in these low-income communities and, and driving some, some real needed social impact. Uh, can, can you speak about that a little bit and, uh, and, and about other tools that may be available as well? Yeah, I, I think most, um, well, most developers and investors and funds are aware of different tax credits available at the state and federal level. So low-income housing tax credits, new markets, historic tax credits. I mentioned South Carolina as a state that has a lot of other tax credits. They have a community development tax credit, um, an abandoned building tax credit. So I think looking at that landscape of other tax tools at the federal and state level, um, there's some ways that some, some link up better than others, but I think in terms of innovation, uh, there's a lot you can do there. Um, you know, all of these projects, well, most of these projects require some debt as well as equity. And so because they are low-income census tracts, they're the same census tracts you would find in new markets tax credits. They're the same census tracts that would be a focus in the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, what I found is that most investors and developers, um, and even unfortunately still have many communities that are really, un they're just not familiar with the Community Reinvestment Act. So let me just say a few words about that because I think it's worth exploring. It was passed in 1977. There were a whole series of pieces of legislation that passed during that time period, really focusing on discriminatory practices in various sectors. So what led to the CRA is um, redlining, um, where, you know, financial institutions were, real estate were drawing red lines and saying, we're not going to go into this area um, because of A, B, and C. So these are the same communities we see today that have been disinvested. So CRA came about and basically its two main keys are were at the time small business um, and affordable housing um, were kind of the mainstay of it. Um, CRA is relational. So it all starts with a relationship with a financial institution. I can easily defend financial institutions because I believe even if we didn't have CRA, 
um, financial institutions would still be engaged in these activities. Now, we could argue about what extent, but it's good PR for banks. Banks acquire uh, deposits through this process, and banks genuinely want to be part of the community and community development. Um, But just like with the Fed, I said this field of CD grew up. It's also grown up in the bank. Um, so as the bank had to meet their obligations of the regulations, um, you, you have people in banks that are really focused on community development. Um, over the years with the regulations, you know, there have been more examples and, and some add-ons um, to consider with CRA. So, for example, um, not too long ago through the regulatory process, workforce development. Um, was added as a qualifying activity for CRA. Broadband as an essential infrastructure, broadband as a tool a bank can use um, for digital and technology expansion has been added as a qualifying activity. Um, So I think it, it can be really interesting when you look at how those types of activities could pair up with what's happening in an opportunity zone you could then start to add in workforce development and training programs. You could put the broadband um, in those facilities and banks could be brought in through, banks have three tests under CRA. They have the service test, the lending test, and the investment test. It varies based on the size of of the institution, but here you've got three other ways that you can bring the banks in. And these are the areas that they're looking for qualifying CRA activity. Um, So I think that can be an interesting tool that uh, really can pair up nicely. You've got two banks that have opportunity funds. So Wood Forest Bank has a real estate fund um, and PNC has a social impact fund um, that has an advisory committee. So you've got two banks out there with a fund and they are pairing up their fund activities with CRA. Um, So I think there's a lot of um, untapped potential um, for that. Now, we are in the middle of, uh, there hasn't been a lot done to modernize CRA. So CRA, I mentioned, passed in the late 70s. The regulations are updated, not frequently, um, but the act itself hasn't really been modernized to take into account all the changes we've seen in banking. So, um, you know, banking was confined to state banking. Now we have national banks. Um, That was not part of it when it was um, originally passed. So we do have now a modernization um, rulemaking taking place with two of the three regulators, the um, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and Treasury and the FDIC have put out Um, proposed rules to modernize CRA. Um, And it'll take some amount of time um, after comments are received to work through that regulatory rulemaking. But we could see some changes that, you know, potentially could even be more enhancing to opportunity zones. Um, We could certainly see, you know, depending how they turn out, some, some challenges with that. But I would just encourage communities, developers, investors to think about that debt side, and then think about how they would have that relationship with the financial institution around the CRA component, because that can conceivably be a win-win situation. 
No, that's great. Yeah, a lot of uh, activity with the Community Reinvestment Act. I don't, I don't want to harp on the proposed CRA regs for for too much longer, but I, I do think it's important for our listeners to know just that you know what exactly what's going on. And I think you 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 stated it well that you know proposed regs were recently issued. I think back in December of 2019 by the FDIC and the OCC, as you mentioned, and if approved, uh, you know one of one of the changes to the CRA regulations is that CRA credits would be given for any community development that provides financing for or supports uh, qualified opportunity funds. Is is that correct? Um, and 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 the FDIC and the OCC are only two of the three regulating bodies. The third one is the Fed, I believe, and they have not signed on to these proposed regs. Maybe maybe talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, so that I'll start with that. Your last question. So that's really a component of which banking regulator regulates which type of bank. Um, so the OCC and the FDIC together are about eighty-five percent of the banks, and the Fed has about fifteen percent. So the bulk of the banks are regulated by the OCC and the FDIC. And those tend to be the larger institutions. So um, that's one of the reasons why you see them plowing forward. When you think about how the regulatory process works in different sized banks, um, and one of the pieces of the proposed rulemaking is around some metrics and formulas, it's easy to see why that might work better for larger banks. And the Fed is being a little bit more hesitant uh, to sign on um, about that particular metric. I did listening sessions when I was at the Fed and the smaller banks um, tended to like how CRA is now (laughs) uh, without changes to it. So, um, you know, that may change in the future as the process goes along. And I think everybody's hopeful that all three regulators would be on board because um, it could, it, it's been that way in the past, and it could certainly get confusing um, to have different sets of uh, rules uh, for different size banks um, under different regulators. Um, now, so I think you know the other the other piece about the CRA um, modernization, you know, besides the metrics, there's a lot of concern about loss of branch banking. Um, in underserved areas, both rural and urban. Um, And a lot of what CRA is built around are these assessment areas where the banks do business. Um, And we have this move towards digital um, and online banking, yet these are the same communities that don't have the broadband adoption and adaption. So I think a lot of um, how you could make this complementary exists with the CRA. And that's why pairing it up with the um, opportunity funds could be, you know, a win-win for the fund as well as the bank. Great. Well, yeah, certainly uh, a lot changing in the banking industry over the last uh, couple of decades. It's good that they're modernizing these regulations and bringing opportunity zones into the mix as well and and providing credits for those institutions that support qualified opportunity funds. I think I think that's great. And I, um, I'm hoping that uh, those regulations uh, get enacted uh, relatively soon and can help drive some more capital into these opportunity zones. Do do you have any idea when these proposed regulations uh, would go into effect? So typically, um, if you look back historically, there have been periods where there have been some 
you know, I hate to say minor, but they really were more minor changes where examples were provided through a process called question and answer. Um, and we called them the Q&A. There were some more extensive changes back in 2006. Um, but, but this uh, really looks, you know, it's 250 pages of proposed regulations. So this could be quite um, lengthy in terms of reading all the comments, recrafting and putting it back out. I would be surprised if it occurred in, in a year. Um, just to be honest, because you've got two different entities, you know, receiving feedback, crafting information, and then you still have a question of whether the Fed is going to tie in with them. I know they would like to do it faster, but I, w I really would be surprised if it was um, faster than a year. Um, I think the other piece of this is I used to always tell communities that even when the Q&As came out and did a little bit of refining like around workforce and broadband, for example, you kind of have this system in place where you've got, you want to educate the regulators. So you've got a supervision staff that are used to doing things, you know, a certain way and, and there's very specific processes in those entities. So you've got to bring a whole regulatory staff up to date with what the changes are. You've got to work with the banks and bring them up to date. And then you've got to work with the community and bring them up. So it's three legs of the stool. And if we added opportunity funds, investors and developers, we potentially have four groups. And so it takes, a, it does take some effort um, to make sure that everybody's being educated and kind of in sync. So if you go out and start talking about you know, the new rules and regs with the community, but the banks aren't comfortable with it and the regulators aren't comfortable with it, then you've, you've got kind of a myth. And I know from the Q&As in 2016, it's literally taken up to now, 2020, to see a lot more activity from banks around broadband and workforce. And it's still not extensive. So that shows you how long it takes um, for that learning curve uh, to go out there. Uh, you know, one misconception about CRA is that somehow regulators are telling banks what to do, and that is not at all how it works. A uh, bank has a strategy. Um, they might be a small lending bank. They might be a housing bank that does mortgages. They have a mission. They have a strategy. No regulator is telling them they have to do any, we're basically giving them a menu. They don't have to do anything. They can still do it with framed within what they do as a bank. And CRA is largely storytelling. The bank tells its story of who they are and what they do. They tell their story of the communities they're serving, what they need and how they're going to meet that. And then the regulators come back and double check that. And banks are subject to a lot of other regulations. So the CRA does not tell them to do something that's not safe and sound uh, because they have to meet their other regulatory guidance for that. So um, through this telling the story, there's definitely checks and balances to make sure that the needs are being met. Um, but I just wouldn't want anyone to count on, you know, massive changes occurring quickly. Um, it is tends to be a slower moving process, but banks uh, do, overall do a great job with CRA. Many do well beyond what is required of CRA. 
Um, and as I mentioned, they would, I think they would do it regardless of whether it was a regulatory requirement at all. So I would encourage investors, developers, opportunity funds uh, to think about CRA. Um, you can go to richmondfed.org um, community development and there's a CRA resource center. I helped produce a set of videos um, that you can sit at your desk and um, learn about CRA. Um, and then just think of that as another tool and another relationship uh, to bring to the table as you're being innovative around opportunity zones. Well, that's great. And it's a good, good thing to keep in mind that change like this does not occur quickly. We just went through a regulatory process with Treasury and the IRS with qualified opportunity funds. And it, it took, that was a two-year process from when the statute was passed until when final regs were issued by us. So I can only imagine that CRA with three different agencies involved could take uh, quite a bit of time as well. And then, as you mentioned, the ability for the banks to adopt the strategies and, and get educated on the new regs and on qualified opportunity funds can take some time as well. So definitely not a, a quick turnaround by any means, but certainly some momentum in the right direction, I hope. Uh, Jeannie, thanks for the conversation today. This has been terrific. Uh, a lot to think about in terms of community development and how banks can get involved and how developers and investors can leverage banking institutions for making a big impact in Opportunity Zones. Uh, terrific talking with you today. Before we go, Jeannie, can you let our listeners know where they can go to learn more about you and the Invest to Sustain initiative at UNC? Yes. So um, you can go to um, Keenan, it's K-E-N-A-N hyphen Flagler, F-L-A-G-L-E-R dot U-N-C dot E-D-U. That's the business school at UNC. Um, and you can find Invest to Sustain there and my contact information. And I'll, of course, provide that to you to cross post as well. And I'm always interested in uh, talking to people about their projects and um, offering any um, assistance that we can. Perfect. Thanks, Jeannie. And for our listeners out there, I will produce show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website, and you can find links to all the resources that Jeannie and I discussed on today's show. I'll be sure to link to the Keenan Flagler Business School, and I'll have Jeannie's contact information on there as well. And you can find those show notes for today's episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Jeannie, thank you again for joining me today. It's been great. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.